Well, good morning again, everybody. I hope that you had a, a pretty good week. I'm glad that you're able to join us today. Um, we are in the full swing with the travel season through the summer. Many of us have gone on some shorter trips and maybe a few longer ones here and there. And I know that some of us still have some longer ones ahead of us in the next month and a half before school starts. You know, trips can be fun. We enjoy the sights, the locations, the food, new traditions, cultures, all of that kind of stuff. And maybe you go to the same spot every year because you enjoy those things to begin with. You really love the locations that you visit. Uh, this year, the kids and I were able to accomplish one of our goals in terms of hitting all 48 of the lower states. It was a wonderful goal, goal and now it moves on to Noah's pick for our next big trip. And he's kind of freaking out with that pressure. So we were a pretty traveled bunch. If you want to give him or any of the kids really some ideas of some of your favorite spots, I'm sure that that might help him out or make him crack under the pressure a little bit more. Who knows? But you know, many things can happen while we're on these long trips. Uh, we see a lot of different things. We see a lot of cool sights. But there's also a lot of really neat things that can happen on some of our shorter trips around here as well. We live in an age and a nation where traveling long distances is possible within a day and almost even expected with the invention of planes, trains, and automobiles. We can move each other and things around pretty easily. And yes, that was the reference to the awesome movie from the 80s. But you know, you think about what it was like in the past. Maybe you had horses. Most of the time you probably relied on your two feet to get you to different places. In two hours time, you could probably walk about six to seven miles. Think about how far you can go in two hours time with an open road. As fast as the speed will allow you, right? 140 miles, 160 miles, depending on how fast you wanna go. A lot, a lot of difference within that. And then you think, what happens during those two hours of time? Well, if you're a passenger, you can sleep, you can watch a movie, you can read a book, you can listen to music, you can play some games, you can talk. If you're walking for two hours, you can still listen to some music. I don't necessarily recommend watching a movie while you're walking. You can fall in a hole pretty easy that way. But maybe if you're walking with somebody, you could have a conversation. Somewhat of a dying art, having a conversation with someone for two hours. Beyond how is the weather. Today we're gonna to be looking at one of the most famous walks in the Bible, the walk on the road to Emmaus where two disciples encounter the risen Lord, having probably the best conversations that they've ever had in their lives. So if you have your Bibles, you can join me in Luke chapter 24 this morning. I'm going to begin in verse 13. Verse 13. That very day, two of them were going out to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. 
While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Father, as we go to your word, I just pray that you would help us to understand, to know um, your truths. Allow us, to, allow us to lean into your spirit this morning. In your name I pray, amen. So as we, as we can see, this narrative is tied pretty closely to where we left off last week. This is still the first day of the week, the first, or, or the day of the resurrection. Um, it's probably in the afternoon mid-afternoon-ish time frame where these travelers are heading home from Jerusalem. As it says, um, these two people, where it says two of them, it's connected to a previous passage to, to link that to two of the disciples. One of them name is Cleopas. The other we don't know. Perhaps it's his wife since they stay at the same residence. Again, we're not quite sure. And they're traveling to Emmaus. Emmaus is believed to be about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem and would take, you know, about two hours to walk on a good road, depending on the terrain, depending on how uh, relaxed they might be walking. Another important detail that Luke always th kind of throws in there, that there's two of them. 
So later on, it's going to be a valid witness according to the Jewish regulations where two people will be able to give testimony to the risen Lord. And as they're going along, they're kind of discussing the events of the Passover, what's happened over this weekend. A lot has happened. And then Jesus joins them. It says here that they could not recognize him. He looked like a real man, but they couldn't tell that it was Jesus. Something was needed for them to recognize who he was. Now, remember, these are disciples. These are followers of Jesus. And you think about some of the other people that the other Gospels talk about, how Mary thought he was the gardener, how Peter didn't recognize that it was the Lord right away in, in the book of John. But these are disciples who do not recognize that it is Jesus. And one of the implications about this text is that it is God who is keeping them from recognizing or f- keeping their eyes from seeing. Definitely a passive possibility. But today I also want to suggest that it is their own blindness that continues to keep them from seeing clearly. And I'll get into that explanation here in just a bit. Jesus kind of comes on the scene out of nowhere. He just kind of pops up on the road. It's not like there's a bunch of buildings that's surrounding them on any side. He can just pick up around a corner and surprise them. He just appears on the road. He walks with them for a little bit, and then he asks a question. What are you talking about? Kind of just inserts himself into their discussion. Don't you love it when people do that? And you know, another thought that goes through my mind, because the society that we live in, if somebody comes up kind of behind you like that, is stranger danger. You know, this could end in a tragedy pretty quickly. But the real tragedy here is in the fact that they're going to have to recount what happened. And it makes them sad. They're saddened by these events. The death of Jesus affects them, but not necessarily in the right way. They stop moving. They stare at Jesus like, who are you? Have you been living under a rock this whole time? How do you not know what's going on? And in my typical fashion, like behind, under, in, maybe for the last couple of days, but, you know, but I'm out now. You know, and it's, it's interesting. They're pressed by Jesus here to explain what has happened. I think that's another quality or an art that is lost. Being able to articulate things with meaning. Being able to describe and explain things to people. You know, can you tell me about the 35th president? Can you tell me about the stock market crash? Can you tell me about the Dust Bowl? Can you tell me about the American Revolutionary War? Can you explain it with meaning? You know, the Bible tells us Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Are you ready at a moment's notice to do that? Something to ponder. And they answer Jesus in this way, starting in verse 19. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day 
since these things happened. So basically, these two disciples are tasked here to describe Jesus and what happened to him to Jesus without knowing that it's him. It's kind of similar to the Undercover Boss show, if you've caught any of those episodes. But you think about this type of task. How would you do if you were given that same charge? How would you describe Jesus, say what happened to Jesus, to Jesus? Does it make you nervous thinking about that? Do you start getting fear welling up inside? What if I say something wrong? You know, fear silences us at times. But you know, you think back to the disciples, you think back to the apostles, how many times were they wrong? How many times did they put their feet in their mouths? How many times did they mess up? You know, I'm trying to alleviate our fears a little bit because we actually have to take steps forward in order to grow. We have to be able to make some mistakes because it shows that we're moving in that type of a direction. There's a few things in what they share that I believe shows where their faith lies. First, they call him a prophet. Now, Jesus himself Calls, says that he's a prophet in 424 in Luke. He says, and, tr- and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own town. And he is perceived as a prophet in 716. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And this was as he was raising the widow's son from the dead. But the resurrection has proved Jesus to be more than just a prophet. He is something much more. You know, they rightly speak about Jesus' might in word and deed. They talk about the blame being put on the rulers and the chief priests for condemning him. But look at verse 21. Here's where I believe they show the reason, here's where I believe shows the reason that they could not see Jesus for who he was. They had hoped for Jesus to redeem Israel. Now, hope is a good thing. Don't misunderstand that. But their hope is in something that they wanted. They were not believers with the understanding that Jesus was the Son of God or the understanding that he was the Christ. By their own description, he is a prophet. And they had hoped for redemption, but redemption in the sense from the oppression of Rome. That's what they wanted deliverance from. See, there's a difference in the expectations of their hoping for something that they want versus trusting in something that God has promised. Trusting that he is our deliverer and savior, but from the enemies of sin and death. They also mentioned that this is already the third day, meaning they did have some expectations that something would happen on the third day. Again, failing to see the importance or even believe what the empty tomb would mean. Because they had hoped, past tense, but not really hoping currently in the present tense. They do not have the eyes to see Jesus because they were still blinded by what they wanted Jesus to be. Their faith is superficial at this point, based on what they want. They then discuss the empty tomb. Now there is some evidence there, but no evidence of Jesus 
Even the news of the angels who visited the women did not cheer these men up. I mean, even, even if it sounds cheerful in this section, remember, just mentioning the conversation makes them sad. They did not, they were not filled with hope. They were not filled with joy. The empty tomb in and of itself is a strange puzzle to the disciples. It is just an empty tomb. The empty tomb has to point to the resurrected one. The tomb itself is not the important thing. The resurrection of Jesus is the key piece to our faith. You know, sometimes we can hold on to other things in our faith and place importance on those things that end up taking a priority for a season in our life, whether that's a ministry, a pastor, a denomination, a theology, uh, our favorite seats to sit in, as some of us were joking about that a little bit earlier on today. A.W. Tozer says this. Well, before I get to that quote, we have to understand that Jesus has to take priority in our lives. You know, Tozer says, a true Christian does not consider Christianity a part-time commitment. He has become a Christian in all parts of his life, and he has reached the point where there is no turning back. See, Christianity cannot be a one-foot-out, one-foot-in, hokey-pokey type of faith. It can't be superficial in that way. It's an all-in commitment. We can't be on the fence. The resurrection is about the resurrected one, and that connection needed to be made for these disciples. Now, these next three verses, they're probably some of my favorite as a pastor, and they definitely heavily convicted me this week. Oh, foolish ones. How often do we call people out for being fools? Maybe another lost art. But at what basis or standard do we use to call someone foolish? In the Old Testament, a fool was someone who rejected God, someone who did not allow the scriptures to influence their thinking and their behavior. And these disciples are being called fools because they... They were slow to believe what the prophets have revealed. They overlooked the prophecies that the Messiah would have to suffer many things. They overlooked what Jesus said himself about his own death and instead focused on the glorifying kingdom that he would usher in. That was where their priorities were at. Jesus is showing that the problem is in their hearts. Their faith is superficial and their understanding is incomplete because they're inserting their own ideas and what they want into their faith. It's a warning that Jesus gives that is profitable for all of us. All of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. So we cannot slack off, we cannot slight any of those passages that might be difficult. Instead, we need to strive to understand all of them so that it can bring us joy instead of sadness. Jesus then goes on this teaching course through the law and the prophets and points out things that point to the Christ, to himself. He teaches them about himself, what they were supposed to learn, what they were supposed to understand during this time that he was with them. And you think about this teaching, 
We're not privy to what is being said. But you have to think what type of exposition this must have been. How awesome it would have been to sit under this teaching to the point that a little bit later on they, they comment, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? How great it is to be able to sit under that type of teaching. And again, it convicts me to no end the importance of drawing Christ out of the passages, seeing Jesus as he sets this standard, something that is picked up, um, picked up by the early church as well, to be able to convey the passages in such a way that their hearts are burning. Again, I realize my shortcomings in those areas. But we look to what the church does, or the early church does, as Jesus is setting the standard here for this spiritual illumination. In their sermons in the early church, they point the Jews back to the Old Testament passages to see how Jesus fulfilled those texts. How they can then rely on the promises of God as being true. They center their ministry and their preaching on explaining what God has revealed. And this method is essential for spiritual understanding even today. But as the travelers stated, Jesus is mighty in word and deed. Throughout Jesus' ministry, his word is confirmed by many deeds. Jesus' ministry is not just hype. It's not just eloquent words. Paul says that. He says, I did not come with eloquent words, lest the cross be emptied of its power. And a little further in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, And when I came to you, brothers, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know, I'm not sure how many conversations you've had with unbelievers. And we can try to... We can try to logically reason and battle this world in that way. The world that does not believe in absolute truth. And we can see how far that gets us. You know, if the travelers and the disciples understood what the prophets spoke about, they would have believed the women about the tomb. But sometimes it's hard to believe others at their word because we live in a cynical world. It's hard to believe the Bible at times because it's a bunch of words. And these words to an unbeliever about the cross are folly. They don't treat them as the word of God. You talk to another person in a different religion, they have a holy book too. What makes the Bible true? What makes Christianity true? What makes Jesus true? Because he says so? How good is that argument to an unbeliever? 
It's like a parent telling a child to do something. Why? Because I said so. Oh, since you said so, let me just get up and do that right away. How often do we hear that as parents? Many times it makes us more cynical. We question even more. And yes, this is the truth. But Jesus made a ministry of confirming his word with miracles, with the supernatural. And yet, we are so content to just maybe use some words without having hearts burning and think that that is going to be enough. Now, can the Spirit confirm our words? Absolutely. He works through our deficiencies. He works through our weaknesses all the time. But here's the point that I want to challenge us with today. There is a burning in their hearts at Jesus' words. There is a burning in their heart, and yet they still do not recognize Jesus. Let that sink in. As a pastor, I know that I'm not eloquent. I know that I could change styles. I can pound on the pulpit. I can bring hellfire brimstone messages. I can just yell loudly to get us motivated, to get us encouraged, to get us to go and ramp us up. We can have some lights and fog machines and entertain everyone. I could do all of that stuff. But if the words that I speak are not confirmed by the Spirit, then it's just superficial. Can my expositions make your hearts burn? Maybe. Every week you get some for, some against. Someone's like, yeah, that's right where, what I needed to hear this week. The God, God's really using that. Others, meh. You know, sometimes that's, that's on us too, how we're coming ready, prepared in our hearts and minds to receive the word, to worship God. But I was convicted this week that I need to be able to get a person to this point in how I'm relaying the word of God so the spirit can take hold of that and turn what is superficial into the supernatural. Now sometimes that's kind of an aha type of moment. Like in our passage with the breaking of bread where they recognize that because they've seen that before, they've identified that. Or with the, the video with uh, Operation Christmas Child, just receiving the box to see that love. People can make that connection with small things like that. Sometimes it is the spiritual gifts used by men and women of God to confirm the truth of the Bible. But either way, the Spirit must be working in our faith, in our presentations of the gospel. Otherwise, it is just superficial. Otherwise, it is just our words. Otherwise, it's just us in our own power. And that's not what the gospel is about. Jesus being alive is supernatural. Him dwelling in us is supernatural. But how are we living our faith? Most times, I would say superficially. Where we do what we want, we take what we want, what sounds good, what keeps us comfortable, what keeps us complacent, which keeps us happy, and we just sit there. 
We don't want to be challenged. We don't want to be shaken out of our seats. We, want to, we don't want to have to go talk to our neighbors because I'm afraid that I might say something wrong, because I'm afraid that I don't know everything that I need to know, because I don't trust that the Spirit would be with me. We ignore the rest of the passages of Scripture that are God-breathed because that might mean that I might have to exercise my faith, put into practice what I'm claiming to believe. I think one of the greatest examples of what I'm trying to get across is the healing of the paralytic in Luke chapter 5. If you could, turn back there with me. Chapter 5, verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what, had been laying, what he had been laying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe. We have seen extraordinary things today. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or be healed. To say that your sins are forgiven, you can't really see the tangible witness of your faith. But if you're going to say be healed to someone, well, that's going to be visible. That's going to be right there in your face. And what if I fail? What would happen then? Many times we put ourselves in, our, in positions to not really exercise our faith. We take the path of least resistance, we take the convenient theologies, and we just wait for heaven. We just wait for Jesus to take us home because that's what we want. That's what we insert into our faith. Forget, you know, all the things that Jesus tells us to do. Cases in point. Who has shared their faith this week with another person? This month? Who has fed the hungry, clothed the naked, taken care of the orphans and widows? Who has loved their neighbor as themselves? This week, who has discipled another believer? The Bible says, make disciples as you are going. Who has discipled this week another believer? Do we only have the faith if it's convenient to get what I want? Many times we settle for that type of faith.
these travelers, they invite Jesus in as it's getting late. Travel on the roads at night can be dangerous, a lot of bandits, a lot of um, muggings that would happen. I think also they kind of want to hear more of what Jesus has to say. And Jesus breaks bread with them. Immediately they understand who Jesus is. Now they would not have been in the upper room with Jesus for the Passover, so their context, their understanding of this visual would have to be coming from one of the feedings that they were there to to see this, to recognize and identify this as an action that Jesus would do. They then knew that the man that they had hoped for was the Messiah, the Messiah who had to suffer before he was glorified. They knew that he was now resurrected. God gave them understanding. God is the one who reveals his son to the people by his spirit. And it was in an action that they were able to identify Jesus. Their hearts were burning and they were in the right place to see Jesus, to encounter him, and they did. When Jesus is revealed to a person, it's not this ho-hum experience. It's not the the everyday, run-of-the-mill type of ordeal that you would be going through. It consumes a person. And we can really see that here because it causes these travelers to go back to Jerusalem in the night, in the evening, so that they can share with the other disciples their testimony, their witness. Who cares about the dangers? Who cares about the muggers? I just met Jesus, and this cannot wait until morning. That's how important this is. This is how it consumes these disciples. They cannot keep this good news to themselves. And they return, and they find that Jesus had also appeared to Peter. And then they, as two witnesses, get to recount everything that had happened to them on the road and how he was known by the breaking of the bread. There's an emphasis on repeating that part because it's an action that's identifiable to Jesus. It's an, ex- it's an experience that they will lean on for that validation. We all have those moments in our faith where we know, I know God is real because of this. We all have these things that we point to, and we hold on to those things, and we cherish those things. They are now experiencing a joy that would launch the new church. You know, the the events of the resurrection, they cannot be reduced to a creed, to a hymn, to a philosophy, to a doctrine. Our faith is more than just words. It is not meant to be just intellectual or something that we're convinced of or something that just sounds nice or persuasive. We're not simply asked as Christians to believe a set of beliefs, a set of doctrines. Instead, we are asked to meet with the person of Jesus who was raised from the dead. We move to an intimate knowledge of him who is the ultimate truth, and he dwells in us. The resurrection power of God is in us. And yet, how often are we still living superficial lives? Being led by our own expectations of who Jesus is and not what he calls us to be, not doing what he asks us to do. An encounter with the word should bring burning to our hearts. An encounter with the living word, the living God, should move us out of our seats, out of our complacency, out of our comfort to go to the ends of the earth 
for him. And sure, you can say, this is the living word. We all understand that as believers. But the point of the living word is that it is not just words on a page. But you take those words on the page and you internalize them. They become a part of who you are, a part of your life. And you live them out. You breathe them back out in praise to God. They don't just close in a book and then it stays there for the week and then you might bring it off, dust it off for Sundays. Being a Christian is who you are if you are a believer. It's not a one foot, one foot out type of thing. And I understand that I cannot take on your faiths for you. I understand that as individuals, it is your walk. As teenagers, as children, you can't have your parents' faith. You have to understand things for yourself as you get older. And you take that, you take that on. But I, I was convicted this week that I have not done enough to bring that burning desire. I'm convicted because I have bought in to the routines and the platitudes, making sure to say the right things so I didn't upside, upset this side or upset this side. I'm done with that. I just am. Because it's not beneficial to anyone to live in comfort. If I say things that upset you, I say things that upset you. But hopefully, I'm taking it back to the word and it's the words of God that you're upset with. Definitely call me on it if it's my own self coming through. But when I look at our lives and when I look at our church, we're superficial. We need to hear those things because it should make our hearts burn for the desire. You know, the anthem of the church should not be comfortably numb by Pink Floyd. Instead, it should be light a fire in my heart by Sonic Flood or something like that. We should have the word confirmed in our hearts in such a way that we are rushing out of here every Sunday to spread the good news because we have encountered the risen Lord. And we understand what our faith means, that we can't keep silent, that we have to be able to tell those around us that he is risen. Oh, we are the foolish ones. We are the fools who squander what we have been given to think so little of the power of God, to think so little of his desire to work through us to advance his kingdom. Nobody is worthy, so get off the comment, I'm not worthy or I'm not good enough. Nobody is. But God has made you for specific purposes to serve him. And we need to begin to get on board with that. We can't be sad like these travelers. We cannot be standing still for too long. We know the words of the prophets. We know the New Testament. We know the words of Jesus. We've been in church for years. What are we doing with those words? Because God forbid he should come back and find us lukewarm. I repent of that, and I am sorry. Let's pray.
Father, may it never be said of us that we would have an encounter with you and not recognize you. May we not be so self-absorbed into our own desires and selfishness that we fail to see you naked and hungry in front of us, that we fail to see the opportunities to bring up a young believer beside us, to walk alongside of them in life, that we would never fail to see that opportunity to share your good news with that unbeliever. Lord, you have equipped us. We have been in church for years. We have heard your word. Lord, would you change our hearts and minds through the power of your spirit. Would you mold us and make us in a way that can be used by you? Would you help us in those moments of disobedience to rely on your blood-bought grace to overcome the enemy? Lord, we repent of sinful habits, actions, and thoughts. And I pray that your, that your spirit would breathe fresh life into us today, that we would be filled with your joy because you are risen, that you would help us to understand the fact that you are risen is because sin could not hold you Death could not hold you. You overcame the power of death. That you went to the cross and gave your life to pay for our sins. A truly humbling, an amazing wonder. Lord, we've, we prayed for revival earlier today. Lord, it, it's got to come through us. Help us to not just sit back and, and wait to, in our comfortable padded seats. Lord, you have equipped us, you have tasked us, and we are to go. The reason why there isn't revival already is because we don't go. Help us to go in your spirit this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.